Welcome back to In the Queue Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil, and I think that Terrence Malick has at least one more great movie in him, but this film is not it. Oh, ooh, this is so exciting for me to hear. Yeah. I am your co-host, Andrew, and it's almost as though Terrence Malick heard all of my complaints about him and his style and his self-indulgent pattern of filmmaking, and he decided to make a film that just exemplified everything that I hate about him. <laughs> all right. So uh, we're, we're, our discussion today on In the Queue is going to be about the new Terrence Malick film, Night of Cups. Um, Terrence Malick has been been quite prolific uh, since coming out of retirement um, yeah. in 1998 when he made The Thin Red Line, which I absolutely love and think may be his masterpiece. Uh, since then, he's made several features, uh, and Night of Cups is his latest. We're going to talk all about that film in just a moment, but first I want to tell you guys out there where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog at www.in-the-q, that's the letter Q, dot com. And on our blog, all of our episodes are posted along with the summaries that we write for every film. Uh, you can leave comments or questions for us. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In The Queue. That's Q-U-E-U-E. That's how that's spelled. And mm-hmm. on our Facebook page, once again, all of our shows are available. You can just scroll down to get to the very beginning. And we also post videos and other things that have kind of like a serve as a supplement to whatever discussion we happen to be having. And if you want to leave us a listener's request for a movie you'd like us to do on the show, we really prefer that you use Facebook because that will enable us to contact you and then have you Skype in on that episode with us. It's true. Yeah. And then also in the social media universe, we have a Twitter account. We are at ITQ Podcast. That's all one word. So please follow us on Twitter. We'll follow you back. And then lastly, we have an iTunes presence. Um, just search iTunes for In The Queue, Q-U-E-U-E. That's how that's spelled. It's one of the few English language words that has only one consonant. Which is, <laughs> that might be your favorite fact. That's like your favorite language fact. Yeah, well, it's the one that I parrot the most on the air. Uh, I, I don't have a wide repertoire when it comes to these facts. So, so send hey. us more facts. Go to our Facebook page and <laughs> type in some facts for us that have to do with language. We would love it. Um, yeah, and all of our shows dating back to the very beginning are on iTunes, and you can actually get them as they are released twice a week. So check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, the film that we're talking about today is Night of Cups, and it is, as I was satisfied to learn, a wholly improvised film. Oh, geez. The- that. That shows. There was no script, and even the direction and the camera work was improvised. Oh, my God. Um, You have Terrence Malick working with his uh, frequent collaborator, Emmanuel Lubezki, who everybody in the industry calls Chivo. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, as I learned, the actors would show up on set and have no idea what they were going to be doing. And it, the whole film was basically a, the brainchild of Malik, and they would hash it out uh, in real time. And then the result is this film, which is just under two hours long. Um, and it's about a, um, a Hollywood screenwriter 
who uh, played by Christian Bale, who's been in a, in a few uh, Malick films now. Actually, I think this is his second after The New World. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, the film is a, is kind of almost like a montage of him kind of wandering this landscape in L.A. and Las Vegas, indulging. Although the film would kind of like you to understand that he is indulging in all kinds of different decadent pastimes. But in the film, you really don't see him indulge that much. He mostly just kind of wanders around, uh, occasionally, yeah, and- occasionally taking a toot of some substance. But uh, yeah. yeah, in in a way, it reminded me of a much better film, Eyes Wide Shut, <laughs> uh, in that the central character in that film wanders the sort of psychosexual landscape of the sort of pseudo New York that he lives in, mm-hmm. but he never indulges in the pleasures that are to be found all around him. That's true. That's an apt comparison. And there you've got a very different way of making a film, perhaps the exact opposite uh, from Stanley, yeah. from Stanley <laughs> yeah. Kubrick with eyes wide shut. Um, I, I actually, would go so far so far as to say that I really do enjoy Malick's films, his his style, the way he sees the world. Mm-hmm. Some of his films I really do love and I think are masterpieces. I'm mm-hmm. one of the people who actually believes that The Tree of Life could be his best film, uh, certainly one of them. Um, but this film in particular, I just felt like if they wanted to show the aimlessness of the central character um, they certainly seem to have tried to convey that with the the structure of the film, because mm-hmm. it's 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 almost like the middle of a hero's journey. We never see how Christian Bale got to the state that he's in, and we don't, as far as I'm concerned, see a satisfactory way of him getting out of it. Um, the film is divided in title cards, kind of very kind of of generalized titles the last title card is um yeah yeah i was gonna say they don't help right they don't help but the last (laughs) title card is is just the word death uh but there's no there's no physical death uh it just sort of we're just sort of meant to think that that christian bale has just kind of risen out of his of his funk of his misery but there's no sort of uh indication of of what actually happened to him to change his beliefs there's no the 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 title cards are completely nonsensical in this film because it doesn't really indicate any kind of change except possibly the change of the woman that he is spending his time with in each of these segments he's spending time with a different woman Mm -hmm. and so maybe each of them is meant to represent one of those title cards uh quite quite possibly um I have to agree with something that Christopher Plummer said about Malick after they made uh, The New World. and I will never work with this man again. <laughs> he did is say that. that. He, is that... <laughs> he did say that, but he also said that Terrence Malick needs a writer. And uh, yes, I really think that this film, Terrence Malick, he went a little bit overboard, I would say, in his own kind of uh, personal style of filmmaking where he doesn't have to hold anybody accountable, at least of all himself. Well, yeah, and that's that. I mean, my my intro to this episode was not tongue in cheek. I was being very serious. It's like all of his bad habits, all of the things that make him not a great filmmaker in my mind, um, are they're just run amok. It, it reminded me of when I watched Inland Empire, mm-hmm. 
David Lynch's in, Inland Empire, which was the first and only to date uh, film that David Lynch had shot on digital video. And so he didn't have the constraints of film and the sort of the discipline that that forces you into. Yeah, yeah. And with that lack of discipline came a completely unfocused, you know, mess of a movie, I thought. Right. Uh, and this this kind of seems to me like the same thing. Like when he goes too far to that improvisational style, it becomes a nonsensical film. And we've talked before about Malik several times on this podcast or our previous podcast, Albatross Applesauce. Mm-hmm. And the things that we've said about Malik, you know, we, we, we've often focused on the idea that he finds his film in the editing room, right? Yeah. Uh, even, even a movie like the tree of life, uh, is kind of famous for Sean Penn being shocked when he saw the final film, that all of this work that he had done was completely absent from the finished film. Right, And the, the DP said that they could have made an entire feature length film using just Sean Penn's footage. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and of course, uh, he, he's, he's been famous for, this style of filmmaking since the beginning. I mean, uh, from the early days of, of his early masterpieces, uh, he, he has this kind of improvisational style, um, in terms of the filmmaking itself, in terms of the process. And it's kind of, it, you know, I, I mean, I'm, it's no secret how I feel about it. I kind of hate it because I think it leads to very unfocused indulgent, self-indulgent films. And, uh, I remember, uh, seeing the thin red line uh-huh. in the theaters and thinking to myself like, okay, yeah, all right, great. Okay. How many shots of like howler monkeys do we need in this film about world war two and Guadalcanal? Like what is happening well, in this movie? I, you know, that's, that would be a different discussion obviously, but I would, I would defend the thin red lines uh, approach to the way the material is presented in the sense that the, the opening part of the movie which is only about 15 minutes um but when we when the movie came out everybody that we knew at film school would say don't go see the thin red line the first part of the movie is just an hour of nature and animals and nothing happening <laughs> and i think in that case while it was only 15 minutes it it painted a portrait of this idyllic paradise that these american gi's had found when they when they went awol when they when they abandoned the military and they were right. living in harmony they were living in peace and the idea was that they had found their happiness and and they were you know protesting the war in their own way certainly but my point would be that i i understand the picture that he's trying to paint but i think that he lingers a little long like he he doubles down when he needs to lay off is sort of my my read on it that sounds like a Kenny Rogers song. <laughs> <laughs> it's no when to hold him, no when to fold him. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, yeah. He never knows when to fold him. But That's I my still, point. but I still think there is enough. I mean, I feel like there is a lot of potential in Night of Cups to to be a better film than what it actually turned out to be, and that's why I think that I want Ter- I want to give Terrence Malick another shot. Um, he's actually, the man is, he's in his seventies now, but he's already completed his next film and I've, I've looked it up and it doesn't sound like it's going to be great. I'm still interested in seeing it. It's called Weightless and it takes place in the Austin, Texas music scene. And, uh, Christian Bale, Christian Bale is in, in, in that one as well, as well as Rooney Mara, um, some other good people. And it's kind of like another sort of exploration of 
<laughs> Terrence Malick's ego uh, masquerading as a as a, a film about love and consciousness and relationships and mm. things like that. If he's going to continue mm. in his style of not writing a script first, then I think all hope is lost for Terrence Malick. But he's capable of writing his own films, and I don't know why he wouldn't just put a little effort into it next time because I think that the backlash on Night of Cups <laughs> is going to be severe. It's got a 5.8 out of 10 rating on IMDb. Yeah. And it's yeah. uh it seems to have generated a lot of uh sort of ire like from people like Andrew who who don't go with this kind of style of filmmaking. What I I do admire though on one end the experimental nature of Night of Cups. I admire how it's it's kind of like a collage um, and it's interspersed with the occasional title card. And yeah. I think he's really, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve with this film. Um, and so I, I have to sort of appreciate stylistically that he's breaking the rules of filmmaking. Um, I just kind oh. of feel like if you're going to break the rules, you've got to have something better ready. And I think that he, this movie is kind of like a rule breaker, but it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not a game changer. Yeah, not only is it not a game changer, I I don't. I mean, I I came out of this film and I I don't know that it had something to say. There have been plenty of rule breaking films that I've seen, ones that sort of issue conventional filmmaking that were transcendent experiences or mm-hmm. really felt like they had a uh, a vision or a or a an ethos or a, a some something to say, and I felt like this film had it had nothing to say about the human condition. It didn't have anything to say about its protagonist. It didn't have anything to say about filmmaking. I mean, it it, had, it just seemed like an empty experiment. Yeah, well, it sure is empty. And I what I'm afraid of is that Malik chose to convey the emptiness of his of his main character's world. By creating an empty film, I think that may be yeah. what he was kind of banking on when he decided that he wasn't going to write a script. Uh, he was just going to stage scenes. Jack Fisk, his production designer of many years, is back on this film, and uh, they really do paint a portrait of of you know of that world. I would have to say. I mean, you know, with the Hollywood parties in Vegas and and the the apartments that they live in and and everything, the nightclubs like. I really, sure. I really am convinced of the, you know, the the accuracy, or, or I, I believe that the settings are, you know, are real. Um, but I think they just need to have, you know, something to build a scene out of. You can't just shoot the location and have that be your film. Well, yeah, and and what did what was the purpose of all of these things? Just to show this guy's life? Okay, I I'm looking at his life and it seems fine and he doesn't seem too tortured or mm-hmm. bothered or anything. He seems to be totally blase yeah, and just kind of wandering through life and life is just kind of happening around him. And it doesn't seem, it doesn't, as, as you were saying, it doesn't seem like terribly excessive. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like go crazy. He doesn't go on any benders or have any crazy insane times. He just exists in the world and the world exists around him mm-hmm. And nothing seems too terribly crazy. And 
none of the people, none of the relationships he has seems too terribly crazy. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a, a triumph of, of boredom or, or a triumph of, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not talking about in terms, I mean, I, I was bored by the film, but I, I mean, in terms of, uh, portraying such, uh, a boring ver- vision of this kind of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I always adhere to that saying, if you're, if you're going to show boredom in a film, you don't bore the audience. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah. there's other ways to do it. And, uh, I have a feeling that, you know, Terrence Malick was just kind of indulging and, and he probably thinks that the movie is great. He probably thinks that it's fascinating and he probably had a very fascinating time making it. I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. And, um, uh, it's got a good cast: Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Natalie Portman, Wes Bentley, Imogene Poots, Brian Dennehy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these are all you know talented actors, and uh, they're all willing to to sort of participate in Malick's experiment because because Terrence Malick is a legend. Yeah, yeah, and I completely understand that up to a point, but at the same time, like I see these people, and I see <sighs> the film has a weird habit of approaching something interesting and then backing away from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a very interesting, what seemed to be a dynamic between Christian Bale and Brian Dennehy as father and son in this film mm-hmm. that seemed to be really interesting. And then, you know, Brian Dennehy would start yelling about something, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the, the audio would just fade out to to silence yeah. and then you would just watch them yell at each other in silence for a little bit and then it would cut to something else that was completely unrelated and I was like well that seemed like something I might mm-hmm. want to know more about why don't we explore that and then it would just be left by the wayside and then you never see Brian Dennehy again in the film I think that particular style or that quirk that he has t- took root when he was making the Tree of Life specifically in the sort of uh, middle section of the film where, where we see Sean Penn and we see him go about his routine as a, he's like an architect. Um, right. And right. Uh, he is, he's just kind of moving in and out of space and he's, he's, he's having estranged conversations with his wife and he's having unsatisfying collaborations with his colleagues. And I believe that what that is meant to show is Malik's vision of just the, sort of the, the suffocation of, of modernity, um, just kind of the, the misconnections that we all experience in modern-day life. I, I can see that, and, I, and in the context of the Tree of Life, I actually think that it works to some extent, even though I don't... Sean Penn's segments in that film are probably my second least favorite. <laughs> after part. the uh, birth and death of the after universe. The stupid birth and death of the universe parts. Uh like it's a little ham-fisted, man. Like it's a little ham-fisted, buddy. <laughs> um, but the uh, those those segments, um, to Malik's credit and to the credit of Sean Penn and the other actors in that film, uh, it seems to be that he's tuning out the uh, hassles of the modern world in order to return to a time that is more simple, that is more like the the part in the middle with Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and Jessica Chastain that we see. Uh, 
and that seems there seems to be a, a an interplay between those two elements within the film that sets up something dynamic and contrasting and uh we as a viewer can get a sense of that when your entire film is just yeah people's dialogue fading out into nothing while you watch incredibly wide angle shots of people's you know wide angle close ups of people's faces that distort the edges of the frame and just like it's just it's just an uncomfortable sensory experience to yeah. to watch this kind of film by Malik. I mean, I I'm I just f- don't feel engaged or interested or it just makes me feel uncomfortable to watch and not in a positive way where I'm like, oh man, that made me uncomfortable and that it feels good that I felt uncomfortable because I think he provoked me. Right. I don't think he was, there was any provocation here at all. I think it was just sloppy and uninteresting Mm, yeah well i i I kind of uh, agree that it is sloppy in a way and i think that he would have benefited from being a little more disciplined in in the creation of this film there's a there's a quote that happens at the beginning of night of cups and it explains where the name of the film comes from and it has to do with the tarot cards and um about how um a story about a knight who went on a quest but got sidetracked basically along the way. And um, and that is kind of how – that's the extent of the writing that Malik did for this film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is basically setting up what we're going to see for the next two hours. And that is uh, man gets lost. Man loses yeah. himself. And that's a great way to begin a story. But it's just not expounded upon. It's not developed. It's not fleshed out. There's nothing – didactic or pragmatic about it there's one scene in the movie that i thought really kind of worked on the theme that malik was trying to to show uh, the idea of the man getting lost and mm-hmm. there's there's one scene that i feel like touched on what the movie is really about and that's the scene when christian bale goes to this really hallucinatory strip club where everything is like blue there's all this blue yeah. light, and there's a stripper who's giving him like a private show, and she just kind of leans in, and he's he's like staring at her, and he's got like his hand on his fist, just kind of smiling and gazing up at her, and she's like, like you know, you can be whatever you want to be, you 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 know, you'd like to do everything, don't you? And she's kind of like sort of dirt, dirty talking him while he's looking at her, and she's like, it's so much fun to be whoever you want. You can be an asshole, and uh, and I feel like that is an example of screenwriting that, and even if it wasn't scripted, but it's an example Mm -hmm. of how you can show the theme of the film, not through title title cards that tell the viewer directly what you're supposed to feel, but you can build it through dialogue and you can actually develop themes, you know, through the, through the written word. And I think that this movie, as I've said, and I feel like I've stopped talking about that. This film does not (laughs) do. And, uh, I'm going to echo Mr. Christopher Plummer's sentiment that Malik could use a writer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And the Malik film that I enjoy the most is probably the one that feels to me like it's the most written uh-huh. of his films. I don't know if it is or not. I feel like there's some, some of this improvisational style went into this film as well, but the new world, which is, which tends to be not Malik fans. Yeah. Favorite favorite Malik film. I don't like it actually. 
yeah, yeah, we we and had this conversation. That's the movie point. that Christopher Plummer was in, so maybe there wasn't yeah. a script in that case. Maybe not, but at least there is there are direct relationships and cause and effect and one thing leads to another and we have we we tell a story. Um and I'm not somebody who needs a story in my films. I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is Baraka, right? Mm, yeah. The the incredible film that is just a juxtaposition of images. Right, images from around the world that sort of tell a loose story about the cultures of the world and our interaction with uh, mm-hmm. the 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 ancients' interaction with the modern and the uh, you know all that kind of stuff. Life out of balance. Uh, that's a well, that's Koyanoskatsi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is more of the same, and and probably does a more uh, a more focused job of of juxtaposing the modern with the ancient well Kriana Scotsy and that which uh, natural Scotsy was shot by Ron Frick who who later directed and shot Baraka, uh, Baraka. but um and Samsara as well yeah, yeah. oh Samsara is great I love Samsara but I think yeah. that Kriana Scotsy is more it has it tries to be more persuasive than Baraka does yes um, I agree. definitely making I would agree making that. a point about as we said man's relationship with the with the earth yeah, and 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 so it's not that I I can't deal with a film that doesn't have a lot of seeming structure or uh, anything like that. But I think that uh, if you're if you are making motions as though you're telling a story, <laughs> and then you proceed to fail at telling that story, then that's where it starts to get frustrating. And that's what this movie feels like. It feels like an attempt to tell a story or to put us into a character's shoes that was just markedly unconvincing yeah. to me. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it's lacking a story, plain and simple. Um, I, I still will see Malik's films if, if they interest me. Uh, I haven't, well, I haven't seen to the wonder just cause yeah, that's the only one I haven't seen. That too, one, yeah. It just doesn't really interest me. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in it just because I'm I mean like as much as I'm talking about how much I dislike Malik, I still like watching his films. Uh-huh. I still like sitting down and 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 viewing them and picking them apart because it's undeniable that he is an auteur. He has a voice. He has you know his films are unlike anybody else's films. Yeah. And it just so happens that they're not my cup of tea. Isn't right? isn't this great that we can appreciate movies that we don't like and and want to see more because we because <laughs> yeah. we know about the craft of filmmaking indeed. indeed well i you know i mean like i i've always maintained that there is uh just as much if not more to learn from a film that you dislike than there is from a film that you really like you know yeah. uh some some of the the greatest amount of learning that i've done in terms of studying film has happened as a result of movies that I hated mm-hmm. just absolutely hated. And, uh, the more you look at those movies and the more that you understand why it is that you hate them, the more you can understand about why it is that you love the things that you love and what it is that makes the things that you hate, uh, bad. And what it is that makes the things that you love good. Uh, See, for me, all that knowledge would be funneled towards making a film and, and <laughs> doing like a, you know, everything that I've learned up to this point, would all would something that would be something that I kept in mind when I would make a film on on my mm-hmm. own, um, and um, I think that 
I, I still admire Terrence Malick, and I'm actually glad that he keeps making films after having that long hiatus. Likewise, um, likewise. Yeah, but uh, I, th- I think th- I think the world of film is richer for it, regardless of whether I like the films or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not you know this. It can't be said that he's making fluff or bad cinema necessarily. You know, I mean, it may be unenjoyable from my perspective. It's ambitious, but it's ambitious, and he's and he's he's definitely doing things that nobody else seems to be doing. Right, um, that's true, and that's. And that, as much as anything, is an interesting thing to watch, regardless of whether I like the film or not. You know, right? And I think I alluded to that earlier about how I just I like to watch him work. I like to watch him take risks and try new things. Yeah, because you, yeah, sure. you just don't see it anywhere else. There's really nobody else like Terrence Malick working today or or ever in the history of film. Um, yeah. So that's why I wanted to see him do better and make another great film uh, before yeah. he departs, because he's part of a generation of filmmakers that was a. a a great class uh, who came about in the early seventies. Um, he was actually a contemporary of David Lynch at the American Film Institute in the seventies, mm-hmm. and yeah. he's he's part of a generation of filmmakers that I grew up admiring and still admire. So, um, so Terrence, uh, I hope your next movie it's already done. So my my words can't influence you, <laughs> but if they could, I hope that you would pay more attention to story uh, and not so much just directing. Well, hey, man, if he's still finding everything in the uh, in the cutting room, he could always find more, I'm sure. Definitely, definitely. Cool. <laughs> well, um, thanks for listening, everybody, to our show about Night of Cups, the new Terrence Malick film starring Christian Bale. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be the new first-person action <laughs> fantasy thing called Hardcore Henry. Uh, We're going to talk all about that on our next episode, so stay tuned for that.